Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We arrived at a time when... Even Duterte had had to kind of say, we're going to cool it down a bit because there'd been a couple of teenagers who were killed in Calahorcan. And, you know, it, the public public opinion was starting to turn against it because the people who, in these cases, were just so obviously not big-time drug dealers. They were kids, like, dragged from their homes and executed. James Jones went to film in the Philippines to cover the drug war for On the President's Orders. An incredible film that I genuinely recommend you see and is being screened across the globe as we speak and being screened on BBC. So let's speak to James about what he saw with his own eyes in the Philippines and what happened during the filming. This is Stop and Search on Scooby's Pips Distraction Pieces Network brought to you by ACAST in association with Elite UK. Here we go. Behind your barricade Yeah, but how long can I stay? Thank you so much for joining us and this is On the President's Orders with the director, James Jones. This is a film that is so, so important to address. It is an up-close personal perspective of what's going on in a drug war in the Philippines. I was lucky to get to a special screening at this at Twitter headquarters for UNICEF Next Generation and the audience was just blown away. It was absolutely incredible. We speak about some of James's other films as well in this and other projects, but if you want to keep up to date with his work, then on Twitter, find him at James Jones Film, or his website is jonesfilms.net. And if you hear a little bit of ambient noise in this episode, it's because we recorded last minute on a hot summer's day, and you can hear a couple of aeroplanes, a couple of sirens, but nothing too bad. And as I said, make sure you keep up to date with the screenings of this film because they're happening globally, but also if you're in the UK, it will be on the BBC any day now. So on that note, let's get straight into this and talk about what's going on in the Philippines. This is James Jones on the President's Orders. It is is literally a case of where do you start? Because, I mean, the Philippines, we've covered it a few times on this podcast, and you think you get to know the subject, and then you see it in even more detail through your film. On the President's Orders, we watched last night on a special screening um, with UNICEF Next Generation at Twitter headquarters, where you gave a and a as well. And it was just such an impactful film. It resonated with all the audience, you could see that. So for you, when did the Philippines first come on your radar? So I think we were just finishing a film about Iraq um, and 
this like amazing photojournalism was coming out mainly from manila um in the kind of months after Duterte came to power in summer 2016. And he'd promised to kill people, you know, you saw in the film him saying, you know, there are three million drug addicts. If Germany had Hitler, the Philippines can have me. So on one level, it wasn't a shock that the deaths suddenly like, increased so quickly. But actually seeing those bodies night after night, and a lot of them were you know, left on the street with like their hands bound with duct tape, their faces wrapped with with tape, maybe like a smiley face written on top of it. Um, And then maybe a sign saying pusher or, you know, I destroyed my life through drugs. And these images that were just like completely unreal. It was like a dystopia, it was like a nightmare. Um, And, you know, there were these journalists, some of them local Filipinos, some of them would would come in um, and just like almost like ambulance chase. They call them the night crawlers and just go out night after night and, and get these photos. So, and it was getting some coverage, but it felt like it's, see, it, it's easy to seem, because it's so extreme and shocking. Some, sometimes those stories, it's easy to feel like it's almost like another world, like it doesn't really relate to you or whatever. Um, so I think the scale of the killing, but then also the fact that Duterte is like a product of our time. You know, there are these rulers these kind of right-wing populist leaders, whether it's Trump, Bolsonaro in Brazil, you know, and like they share an amazing number of characteristics. So we thought like this hopefully will be a film that reveals this like horrific mass killing and these atrocities or or not necessarily reveal, but shed more light on and bring it to a a new audience. Um, But also this feels like, closer to home than it might have done 10 or 20 years ago because the world is drawn to these strong men who are you know literally getting away with murder um and so i think i think we felt like it was a story that had been covered really well but maybe people were getting a bit tired of it and it was becoming a bit formulaic you see a dead body you'd see a crying family and you kind of didn't go any deeper or understand like who was doing the killing how who the victims really were. So we thought, you know, the good thing about a documentary is you get to spend like proper time on the ground. So we thought it would lend itself to like a deeper, um, you know, look at the subject. You, you hit upon a word there that I think summarises is that the leaders that we are, that, and you, you mentioned there, it's all about populism. And it was really exhibited as we went into the screening because outside was ranks of protesters. Uh, all of them had signs that were pro-Duterte. And for me, having covered this subject for a couple of years now, it was quite strange to see that because being a Western, uh, Westerner with a certain degree of arrogance and ignorance, I've just assumed that looking upon this subject where there's mass killings, that most people would be against him. But it's not the case at all, is it? There are people out there that definitely support what he's doing. And how did you find that? Because you, you do cover that within the film as well. You do contextualise it that there is a drug war going on, but there are certain people, especially in the... We'll get to him in a minute, but there's, <laughs> there's some great characters that you pick out in the film. But there are people that do support his policies, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, that, as you say, like as an outsider, you think, you think you kind of assume the Philippines must be a dictatorship because otherwise how would this ruler get away with killing so many of his own people? But actually, he and his drugs war still have like a majority of Filipino support, which is so hard to get your head around because 
you know, he's killed certainly thousands, probably tens of thousands of people, um, some of whom were involved in drugs, some of whom probably weren't. Um, and yeah, I guess that, that was probably the thing that shocked us most is, you know, even early on meeting people, even people who knew, you know, victims of the drugs war would still say, oh, well, maybe that was a mistake, but on the whole, we do support it. And I think, again, that was like a product of our time in that Duterte had mastered propaganda. You know, when he came to power, the drugs problem in the Philippines, I mean, the statistics are vary you know they're hard it's hard to get a really clear idea but it certainly seems like the drug like drug usage in the philippines is no worse than like australia or you know some european countries so the idea that it's this like out of control narco state is just like propaganda and, and fantasy um but it's been really effective with the philippine with the filipino people and they genuinely think that the problems in their lives will be solved if only they could like get rid of these evil drug pushers um and they it's just become like a scapegoat um and that was on the campaign trail you know even when he's now in power he uses it it's almost like a shorthand to be like i'm a tough guy i'm going to deal with your problems and it he chose drugs but it could have been something else you know it could he could have chosen like the muslim population in Manila or something like that. I mean, they are actually quite discriminated against as it happens. But um, he chose drugs and the people who are the victims are like the poorest of the poor, as so often with these kind of things, because they have no voice. Um, and yeah, it was like, it was depressing. So like even people in the slums would support him, even though they would see these bodies night after night. And, you know, particularly the middle classes who were more educated, more worldly, who you think would know better would still support it because it didn't really affect them. Um, it's certainly strange how that relates to what we see in the rest of the world because if you relate it back to this country, again, it's the same thing. We've got folk devils. It's that, you know, that other over there which is causing the problem and therefore if we put force on it, that, that's a good thing. And that's what Duterte's done effectively, isn't it? He's created a folk devil and certainly used the media. And I think you make that point in the film is that he's really amped up the media on this, isn't he? Yeah, definitely. And Facebook and yeah, he's the, the media, he's, you know, the Philippines got rid of their dictator in the 80s. So like actually were set up to be quite a functioning democracy with like human rights organs as part of the state, you know, free judiciary, independent media. And like he's just he's been in power like three and a bit years now. And he's just kind of rolling that back and, you know, interfering in in legal cases, targeting prominent journalists. You know, if he's getting away with killing thousands of, of drug pushers, uh, in quotation marks, he, I guess, assumed he can get away with killing critics as well. And, you know, it's there's a debate going on about how much of that is already happening and how much it's, you know, nervousness that it's going to start happening. But certainly some activists are being killed. Um, so, yeah, it's all quite chilling. Um, I didn't know until you explained last night that... Can you explain how Facebook operates out there and how it relates to phones and... Just wait for this plane yeah, yeah. to go over there. <laughs> yeah. Just to explain, we're in a very hot London office, thanks to Release, who's, who's lending us their office again. And we've got to have the window open, but as you can imagine, right on the London flypath. So. But, yeah, Facebook, I had no idea this was the case out there. 
It's yeah. I mean, Facebook is huge. I think the Philippines has the highest um, number of, or like per capita number of subscribers to Facebook. Like everyone is on it, from grannies down to children, and uh, and actually, like coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, but the people who um, like monitor Facebook for like graphic content or racism, or whatever, a lot of them are actually based in Manila. Weirdly, so like they um just like trawl through this like horrific stuff but um yeah facebook is like where people get their news it's where people it's how people text each other it's where people you know it's just like it is the internet for a lot of people and part of that i mentioned last night is like in the slums everyone has a mobile phone but often don't have credit on it for data or calls but a lot of the packages will allow you to surf facebook for free so that people are just like locked into this world of facebook and duterte like while being not very sophisticated in lots of ways cottoned on to the power of facebook quite early on and like you know like lots of these other populists like knew if he could like skew the 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 kind of reality slightly to serve his message it would like have a huge impact and that before in the run-up to the election i think them pushing stories that blame drugs for other problems or like other crimes you know that just like embedded this idea of like the bogeyman of the drug pusher being the root of all their problems um so yeah it's weird it's like this kind of in some ways like really backwards you know archaic like murderous regime but actually like weirdly savvy in terms of like manipulating the public just yeah that, that is a, quite a dichotomy is that you you associate the policies with being really antiquated and medieval but the sophistication that's gone into the messaging is bang on trend you know it's what we're seeing with films like the great hack and things like that is yeah, that yeah. they use social media to put push the policies that they want within this um and you you really pick out the people that are enforcing these policies there's two in particular in the film um, one which is essentially the the chief of the police is that, is that kind of yeah yeah he's the chief of the Calaocan police yeah the the like city where we were yeah and you, you gave quite a fascinating story on how you got involved with him because you you almost I don't want to say this um, but you almost used his ego against him didn't you to get involved yeah. in there <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean we were because we went out for like a one week recce to Manila and it's like a long way to go and the first couple of police forces we went to um we're like yeah you've got to get a letter of authorization from the ministry and you know it just all seemed like it was going to take forever and like to be honest they weren't that keen to give us access to the drugs war and then we had dinner with this filipino journalist um and she said like i know it sounds crazy because calorcan is like famous for the drugs killings like the hot spots are very controversial but they've got this new police chief and he's kind of larger than life he like goes into the slums at night and like if someone's half naked, he calls it if they're like not wearing a top t-shirt, he'll make them do like gather in the town square and like make him all do push-ups and stuff. So he like, he loves making a show of himself. And so she thought like he might just love the idea of a film being made about him. And she was like, she couldn't have been more right. So we showed up in his office, or we showed up at the police station and then 10 minutes later we were in his office and, you know, we explained who we were he kind of couldn't quite get his head round how far we'd come to visit his office. And he was just like, well, yeah, great. Film what you want. And it was, as you say, it was like him having this big ego and vanity. You know, sometimes those are like crucial to getting to make a documentary. If it's if it's someone who kind of should know better 
or like you know does have something to hide they kind of think that because they're so charming or charismatic and just love the idea of having a film crew follow them around you know they can kind of reveal you know give access to stuff that, that probably in the cold light of day they shouldn't I love the introduction to him as well because it completely encapsulates uh, what the the subject matter is about because we see him on the firing range with with all his troops um, and there's a lot of trigger-happy things there (laughs) and he picks up on this and one of his, uh, I suppose, remits is that he wanted to lessen the killings. He was very much on a platform of, no, we we shouldn't be killing this many people Um, and yet he's in front of his uh, troops that are quite willingly using their <laughs> firearms. Yeah. Um, so was there a dichotomy to his character? Did you get the feeling that he did actually want to sort of do something about this? I think it, I think it's complicated. I think he definitely, like we arrived at a time when even Duterte had, had to kind of say, we're going to cool it down a bit because there'd been a couple of teenagers who were killed in Calorcan and, you know, the public public opinion was starting to turn against it because the people who, in these cases, were just so obviously not big-time drug dealers. They were kids, like, dragged from their homes and executed. So I think he was picking up on the message from above, which was like, we're going to clean it up. I'm the new sheriff in town kind of thing. Um, but I think more fundamentally, he just didn't want it to be messy. I think in his mind, in his heart of hearts, it's like, if you're going to kill someone, it needs to be done efficiently. You've got to know who the target is. You've got to do it in a clean way. And basically the drugs war had got a bit messy. So people were, you know, uniformed officers were like barging into the slum, rounding up young men and then just like killing a couple of them. And it was like, they weren't, they weren't killing people that deliberately. It was almost just like they were overexcited and like, knew they'd get away with it so I think he came in and shootings by police in uniform went right down so he did like instill more discipline in the force but then what we saw as time went on was that they call it riding in tandem and it's basically when a motorbike there'll be two people on a motorbike and they'll pull up alongside someone and then the person on the back of the motorbike would just get out their gun and very professionally shoot them once in the face and once in the heart. Um, and that just started happening in March, like three months into our, our kind of our time there. And, you know, they were pr- clearly well-trained killers. Most of the public assumed they're police, but it was, I think, in Morikio, the police chief's mind, like, that's a cleaner way of doing it and that's in his mind that's discipline that that is trigger discipline in a way because you're not just like going in shooting willy-nilly and then having to like plant a gun on the victim you know that is like he sees it as like a legitimate tool of policing so if someone doesn't stop you can't keep arresting them you just kill them was it difficult because without giving too much away spoiler alerts and everything but um which i can't believe i'm even saying given this subject matter but it you, there is some graphic content in the film isn't there yeah. it must have been difficult to know how far to go and how much to put in yeah it's really hard um and i think we were conscious that we really didn't want it to be like an ambulance chasing film where you just have like body after body after body just for a kind of shock factor but equally it is gruesome and brutal 
And so I think you've got to have a bit of it. And, you know, you'll see, like, right at the beginning of the film, or, like, pretty early on, we show the CCTV of one of the shootings, and it is horrific, and it's unexpected, and it is shocking and upsetting. Um, And it's broad daylight, and the guy who's shot is next to his three-year-old son who also gets shot. You know, it's like, it's full on. And we thought a lot about it, and... You know, I don't necessarily think there's a right answer, but that bit of footage is like central to the film and to the to the period that we were filming in this area. Like we, we filmed with the family of that person, and you know, we could have censored it. We could have cut when the bullet was fired and all of that. But I think if you do use something that's really graphic and shocking, you've got to a understand not become kind of immune to it. Like you still got to know that people will be shocked. Like you don't see that kind of footage very often. And B, it's got to like really serve a purpose. And I think because the police are so like blasé and jokey about it, really, I don't know, for me, like actually seeing like the horror of what they're doing is quite important because, you know, it's more shocking to know. It's one thing to be like, oh yeah, well these drug pushers and like not really human, they're criminals, and, you know, they should just die. But actually when you see these people on the motorbike who, you know, by all accounts seem to be off-duty police, you see that happening and it just like, you know, for me has a big impact and makes you question how this can be allowed to happen and people are literally getting away with murder in broad daylight. Um... So I'd say there's probably like two or three bits of the film. We show a dead body as well. Um, and it's tricky. You just you definitely don't want it to be gratuitous. But equally, it's a very dark subject. And you kind of, if you want the film to have the power to convey the horror, you need to use a bit of it. But it's it's difficult. And maybe that will put some people off. I don't know. But certainly we didn't we didn't use it to like sex it up or to kind of you know make it seem more dramatic it was like very consciously done in a few moments of the film and interesting enough even though there was a gasp uh, a few times from the audience it didn't match the imagery that was on the screen because you mentioned it within the Q&A as well is that when there was a murder taking place and and the aftermath there was yeah. almost a desensitized nature to the to the rest of the community which is just really bizarre to see yeah i mean because it we played that clip at the beginning and then we play it again later when once you kind of understand the context um and who's involved and then we let it play out at some length and so you see the guy you know being shot and then kind of staggering around and no one goes to help him initially and then his son comes and puts him in a vehicle and drive you know eventually drives him off and then within about 10 seconds everyone's back to normal everyone's having a drink and milling around and i think that is you know being desensitized to it a bit it's just become it's not an everyday occurrence but it's not that surprising to people to see someone shot dead by a motorbike and this relates to some of your other projects as well isn't it because uh, one of your other films uh, that we were just speaking about before we, we started recording um, is about uh, it's called Unarmed Blackmail isn't it yeah um, can you give me a bit of a background on that because I'm fascinated because I haven't seen it yet yeah. I'm definitely going to look it up so that was um, 
it was 2016 when I did that and it was around the time, you know, Black Lives Matter had been happening and then every, it seemed like almost every week, certainly every month, there was like another clip of a young black guy being shot dead by usually a white police officer in America. And I just found it really, I mean, shocking. But also, I mean, one of the elements that interested me was that for years, you know, I've done a lot of films in places like North Korea and Saudi Arabia where citizens have like filmed stuff undercover, which has like revealed a reality that we didn't know about before that because you just don't see everyday life. And in America, it was the fact that people suddenly had mobile phones with cameras on them. So these, these moments of people being killed that for many years, the policeman's word was taken as just the truth. You know, that's legally pretty sound if a police officer says I was in fear of my life and he was reaching for something for forever that has been good enough and now that there are either body cams or passers-by have mobile phones or you know dash cams whatever suddenly we're seeing this completely different reality which was police officers I guess charitably putting it charitably like panicking um, in like seemingly quite anodyne you know unthreatening situations um so i really wanted to find a case where um that we could follow through and actually not many of these cases go to trial but we found one in virginia where the the police officer um a white police officer called stephen rankin had shot someone actually almost exactly four years earlier to the day shot he was like a drunk guy banging on a door trying to get in and um he shot him 11 times um and i think was put on kind of desk duty for a little while um but then went back on the street um with a gun and actually in, in the interview we interviewed the officer in the end after the trial and uh said something to us that will stay with me uh which was that they have a saying in the police two weeks and a medal so when you shoot someone, you get two weeks paid leave and a medal for bravery. Um, and, you know, I'd been filming with the families of the victims at that point, so I was quite surprised he said that. Um, but also good on him for doing the interview, you know, because he knew we'd been filming with the other side throughout the trial and all that. So, like, respect to him and his wife for doing that. Um, but so he'd killed this guy before, and then four years later... Uh, this 18-year-old uh, guy called William Chapman was coming out of Walmart that had been suspected of shoplifting, so they'd called the police. And basically, he they had a kind of argument in the parking lot. His taser was thrown, knocked out of his hands. It's hard to Basically, the taser has a video once you activate it, but there's 30 seconds missing from the taser video so we don't know but by the time it landed and came back on the kid was lying down dead the 18 year old was lying down dead and he'd been shot in the chest and in the face um so and there was a black district or commonwealth attorney as it's called there basically prosecutor who uh, given the Black Lives Matter movement and just like the awareness around these subjects and the fact that there was some footage and probably the fact that the police officer had this previous shooting on his record charged him with first degree murder 
which never happens, you know. And it wouldn't have happened four years earlier, for instance, but like the political climate had changed. So we basically filmed throughout the, the murder trial. And I tell you that like the most depressing thing about that film, whatever you think about the individual case, and it's actually, you know, there are arguments that the taser was knocked out of his hand, therefore he felt his life was in danger because maybe the, the guy would get the gun off him. Um, but one thing that was so striking was that white eyewitnesses and black eyewitnesses would see completely different things in that like 30-second incident. White jurors and black jurors would see completely different things. Even the legal teams, you know, the defence team was all white. The prosecution was almost all black. And it was just like... Just and the town itself is fifty fifty percent white, fifty percent black, and it was just like this. And it was just before Trump it went out, just before Trump came to power, and it was just like a vision of this like incredibly racially divided country that you know the justice system basically didn't really work. There must be quite a lot of parallels what you noticed then between that film and the one that you just done on President's Orders, because one of the one of the things that you said at the start of this uh, conversation is that. Um, you know, we look upon what's going on in the Philippines with a certain disdain and Western uh, position, um, but that doesn't always reflect what's going on in the internals. And it's the same with what you just described. There is that there's the same parallel going on of you know a class divide in in the Philippines where the middle classes and ed- education educated middle classes tend to be pro Duterte and pro drug war, and what you've seen in America with how, where there's the racial divide. Yeah, it must have been quite a, a strange position for you to do these two films, but also be pretty striking similarities within them. Definitely. And, you know, in the Philippines, drug pushers are seen as, like, dangerous and demonic and, and threatening. And, you know, sad but true, but, like, kind of Trump-supporting America, you know, non-white people are seen as kind of the enemy. And, you know, the the hard thing for a lot of police, and you see it again and again in, the, in these incidents when they, when they describe it, um, it some, sometimes it's like unconscious racism. You know, maybe some of them don't know many non-white people and the only time they go into black neighbourhoods is when they're having to arrest someone. So, like, the reaction to them is quite hostile. And, you know, the, when they describe the incidents, often, you know, they'll say, like, the more I shot him, the stronger he got and all this kind of... And it's like, it's almost like a instinctive fear they have of, of black people just because they're not, you know, it, it's because it is such a divided country. And like, you know, it, that is racist, but probably some of them wouldn't think of themselves as... I mean, some of them might just be out and out racist, you know. Um, but yeah, I guess like in terms of just like a divided country where some people's lives are seen as worth being worth less... Um, and like, you know, the, the good thing about America, I mean, it's very divided, but there is like a strong political movement. Black Lives Matter is now like totally mainstream, like democratic politicians would, you know, this would be like a big campaigning issue for them. It, I mean, interestingly, because of all the Trump stuff, the subject of black people being killed by police is like way down the political agenda compared to like when our film came out and before. Now it's just like, you know, every day there's another Trump scandal or like outrage. So like this is just, you know, you rarely see those kind of incidents anymore. Just not, there's not the news appetite for it. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I guess you need in the Philippines a kind of, I mean, drug pushers' lives matter is not the the right <laughs> tagline, but it is that you know poor people's lives matter. Yeah, it just goes to show you what what part the drug war plays, and it? it dehumanizes it. It makes the other, the over there, they're all right targets, and these yeah. ones over here are our own, and we need to protect them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which I know, I think that kind of almost gets summarized by one of the other interesting characters in on the president's orders, who was um, a a jailer a, um, you know, a, a prison uh, warden yeah, yeah, how, yeah, do you, yeah. how do you describe him yeah like jail warden yeah he was certainly an interesting character <laughs> and yeah. uh, can you give me a bit of background on him because I think that what what you were saying because last night at the Q&A you were making the point that the camera only got to see a certain element of him because there was there was stuff that you couldn't quite film yeah so can you give me a bit of a, a round up on, on this guy so yeah so he's called Adolfo <laughs> Agustin it's a good name and he was with the police chief in some of his previous assignments in different police forces. So they know each other well. So he has like a direct line to the police chief. And he'd been put in charge of the jail, which was like lots of Philippine jails, like horrific, like incredibly overcrowded, like just like dirty, smelly, just like hell on earth, basically. The conditions that we saw in the film were just horrendous. It was how many people were in a, in a tiny little cell? I mean, it, it was a cell probably the size of like half a tennis court and it had 100 people, something like that. Awful. Uh, I mean, you know, you can't lie down. Everyone's kind of just crouched. Like, Presumably the heat shoulder, is unbearable. And... Incredibly hot. You know, it's a really hot, humid country, you know, I mean, the, there is a fan, but it's like barely even pointed at them. It's just like awful. Um, yeah, it was never much fun filming in the jail. Um, and this guy, the jailer, was like the king of the jail, obviously. So he had his, he actually slept like right next to like a little bedroom with a shower. And he'd actually, anyway, I shouldn't go into this, but like he'd let the women go and shower in his room. And like I was always a bit like pulled by what might be happening in there. But, um, he yeah he took great pleasure in kind of abusing the prisoners um so he'd like issue you know he said to us like you've got to treat them like children you have to punish you know you have to physically punish them to make them behave you have to be a gangster kind of thing i think were his words and so we saw him like beating some of the prisoners with a kind of big wooden stick um and yeah he was it kind of seems in the first scene we have with him, actually the first scene we have with him is him putting on his pants and singing like Hey Jude, <laughs> which is like That's surreal. That's a great intro. <laughs> yeah. I've never seen anyone tuck their shirt into their wife fronts, but it's certainly he did a look. It. It's <laughs> traditional. Yeah. Uh, and he, yeah, so he was abusing them and kind of saying, I'm sorry you have to see it, but this is the way life is here. And it kind of seems like he's talking to us, but actually but kind of behind us are the prisoners' families who've come to visit. So he's kind of like showing off to them like his power over their family members. And we didn't film them because it just didn't feel fair. Like, you know, we felt we, we had to film the prisoners to like capture what was happening, but it felt like a step too far to, to film them as well. But yeah, I mean, he loved like the police chief he loved the attention and he kind of did perform a little bit for us i don't think he did stuff that he wouldn't have otherwise done but you know they all kind of you know they get a kick out of fear 
really. And so if they can like torment people, they will. Um, did you get the feeling with those two main characters that they did very much relish their position? Yeah, I think with the police chief, it was slightly different in that he, I never saw him being cruel. Um, he loved people laughing at his jokes. He loved being able to hug the young women. He loved, he loved being the boss. And actually, a lot of people loved him. He's one of those kind of charismatic bosses that some people really admired and looked up to. Um, the jailer enjoyed his power, but he's a kind of he's at a much lower level and his power isn't over other police officers it's over the prisoners who are like the most desperate people and again it's part of that dehumanizing like most of those prisoners are in there for um drugs crimes so it's that same thing it's like they're not human you know we need to wipe them out they kind of they kind of resent even having to put them in prison, you know. And again, the, the the overcrowded prisons are another reason why police can kind of, in their warped logic, justify the killing. Because it's like, well, there's no space in the prison, so we've got to, you know, get rid of them some other way. I think it was the first year that the kind of drug war was declared. I think it was 3,000 killings, is that, is yeah, that right? Yeah, that which, sounds right. Yeah. Which just, you can't contemplate that, can you? Yeah. Like, on it's, on the kind of national level. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's far more shootings than in America, which is like, you know, famous for police shootings. It's like, you know, factor of whatever. It's like so many more. I mean, it, interestingly, like in the 80s in the Philippines, like Marcos was a dictator. And, you know, by most estimate, about 3,000 people were killed in extrajudicial killings. And Duterte is on, even by his own admission, at the hands of uniformed police officers, up to 6,000. Um so this is like organised, you know, mass scale killing. And what you do well, I think, in the film on the president's orders is you you really isolate down because it is such a vast topic to cover that you do focus on on a family in particular that does go through the absolute tragedy that you can that we've been speaking about where someone was murdered within the family yeah. um how how did you get in contact with them and 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 what was it like filming with them knowing what they've been through as a family um yeah, so there were two there were two families that you mean the one the, the kind of teenagers the young yeah. people yeah so we filmed with them their dad was the one killed on the cctv and basically i heard about this shooting and we went to to try and meet them and it was actually hard because they were kind of laying low they didn't really want to talk to anyone and then eventually we like got in there and they showed us cctv which they still had um and they were just i mean they were kind of shell-shocked and the guy the son you know i mean luckily they've got some family in italy who send them back a bit of money but like their dad was their only breadwinner um so they were yeah they just seemed really lost they just lived in this like apartment at the top of the slum and but they were like also kind of weirdly full of life they were like the boy like rapping and you know they're like really good looking and like charming people um and interestingly you know even they kind of agree with the drugs war which sounds insane like they never quite said it in those terms i think maybe the the girl did once but just like p- 
people have this weird way of removing their own experience from their prejudices or what they kind of have read. So they kind of think like the drugs will works. Some one of the other people that you focused on that I was particularly interested in, uh, and I didn't get his name, but there's a certain activist that you, you pick up on towards the end. Um, could, do you know his name? So people call him Budit, uh, and he works for an organisation called I Engage. He's the guy on the stage at the big demo, um, and it's this amazing moment in the film because you kind of gone through all this like pain and trauma of people being killed and no one's really stood up you know like the families are almost like resigned to it like they're angry but it's very kind of controlled anger so suddenly to hear someone just like go for Duterte in front of a crowd of like 30,000 people is just like really moving I think um and it was this big demo. It's the day when Duterte does his like State of the Nation speech. Um, and yeah, there were like 30,000 people. They burnt the effigy of Duterte's head, which is an amazing moment. Uh, and he's just like kind of rabble rousing, like really passionate and amazing. And he, we actually did a screening with him in Geneva and he was great. And like he really loved the film, which was like very important to us because, um, you know, he really lives this subject but yeah there are some really brave admirable activists yeah, how are. much in danger would someone like that be it's really hard to say i think their paranoia is not the right word but they are very conscious of the risks um because you know throughout the history of the philippines like activists have been targeted as far as i know like the drug war activists aren't being killed in you know the, the, at least among the people that we know in manila it's it's more a fear that they'll be arrested or you know or in the future it, or they'll be trumped up yeah there'll be trumped up charges like with the journalists and and that kind of thing but um i think they're right to be very cautious and nervous but you know he was accusing duterte of running death squads and you know being pretty full-on in his in his attack ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Because sometimes that can be how it works, isn't it? Is that throw the cocus suspicion out there that all oh, that person over there is using drugs purely based on the fact you don't like them or they're, yeah. they're being a bit contentious. And then all of a sudden they're on the drugs watch list, which means that they're, they're subject to potential, you know, extrajudicial killings or arrest or whatever. Yeah, so it, yeah. is, it is, can be used, can't it? It's just the that's, generic. That's true. Yeah, yeah. That is one way of doing it. It's like if your critics, if you want to get rid of your critics, yeah, use drugs as a tool to, to get them in trouble. And he did, yeah, I mean, Duterte, one of his biggest critics, uh, who, you know, has been going after Duterte since he was the mayor of Davao and like, started his like death squad um phenomenon um is now in prison on like trumped up drug trafficking charges and that that is actually something that's leveled at human rights activists in the philippines a lot is like well because you're defending drug pushers in their minds you must be involved in the drugs trade so they're kind of tarnished as being like friends of drug pushers and in some cases even being involved in drug trafficking which seems pretty far-fetched, I would say. From your position, there seems to be a continuity continuity to your filmmaking in, in the sense that you seem to address miscarriages of justice, social social justice, between this film, um, the one we've just spoken about, but also potentially on your new projects as well, is that... Can you give a little bit of information? Not too much. Yeah, also. yeah, yeah. So we're just filming it at the moment, and it's like a... It's a 90-minute documentary for the BBC about the 2011 riots. So, you know, in some ways it it addresses similar themes of, like, a breakdown in relations between community and police, um, you know, perceived injustices and, like, ongoing racial discrimination in part. Um, And obviously it was sparked by a police shooting um, in Tottenham of Mark Duggan. Um, it's, you know, the, the, the film will be told from different perspectives. So like some police voices, some people who are involved in riots, you know, someone who's kind of on the political level, like through a handful of contributors, you kind of, who given the amount of time that's passed can all speak quite frankly about their role and their kind of understanding of it now. So like some of the rioters have been to prison and come out, the police, a lot of them have left now, so I can speak more openly about what what was going on, um, and and also maybe their perception of it and understanding of it has changed in the intervening years. You know, we've had some quite interesting police, in particular, who see the world quite differently now. Um, so it's you know it gets you into lots of the big themes that I'm interested in, um, and I think like at the time we didn't we weren't very keen to kind of understand why it happened you know it was so easy to dismiss as like criminality pure and simple looting you know why why should we bother to try and understand people nicking trainers um and on one level that's understandable but equally these huge like national phenomena don't happen in a vacuum you know and every other major riot that we've had we've like tried to understand what the underlying causes were a bit more and I think, you know, given 
the time that's passed, you can see something in its context a bit more clearly, maybe. So hopefully the film will, you know, and it's not going to try and excuse someone making a pair of trainers. Like that's not the objective, but it's to try, it's just to try and understand what led to that moment, why it happened then, why it hasn't happened again, whether it could happen again, whether the issues that led to that moment, and it was extraordinary, like it's easy to forget, but like for those four or five days, it felt like the country was collapsing, you know, and maybe we're going to see that happen for real uh, in the next few months. But um, it, yeah, hopefully we'll just, we'll just mean that this like actual major historical moment that wasn't properly analysed, I think, not no disrespect to some people who've done really good work on it, but um, just actually feel like, you're kind of understanding what this thing was. You know, we were very keen to move on to like the Olympics and then there was, you know, it's the Olympics the next summer. There was like Eurozone crisis stuff going on. Then there was terrorism, Brexit. And it just always, you know, and maybe partly because it was quite frightening for a few days. People just didn't really want to dig too deep. And like a lot of the communities who are involved in the riots are like largely unseen. Um, but interestingly, you know, I think a lot of people we speak to now say that some of the issues that were underlying the riots are the same issues that have led to the knife crime problem now that we're dealing with it's just people you know the community is like turning on itself as opposed to like expressing its you know lack of stake in society or whatever it may be through you know something that's visible to the rest of society so with your filmmakers hat on is are these the topics that you like to get to the bottom of the ones that as I said, there's quite a parallel that of, of miscarriages of justice or social justice, um, but getting to the root causes and, and, and finding out why and what's going on in societies, that seems to be the sort of areas that you seem to be interested in. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess my dream films are ones that involve like a bit of investigation in terms of like, yeah, piecing together what actually happened, why it happened. So like quite journalistic, but then also like, told through personal stories that, like, reveal these, like, bigger themes. So, you know, like, in the police shooting one, it was, like, following that one case, and through that, you kind of got the issue of police shootings in America, the issue of, like, a racial divide, and all that. You just kind of understood it without it having to be, like, an essay. Um, so hopefully with the riots, we can do that as well, and that you'll speak to, you know, all the different people who are involved. And there's no narration... So you're just like allowing people to speak for themselves. So it's kind of, you know, as a viewer, whatever your position on it, you don't necessarily feel that there's like an agenda. You just feel like everyone's given a chance. And then, you know, obviously it's edited in a particular way. So you might be able to guess what our opinion is. But, um, you know, interesting. I mean, really interestingly, the, the wife of the police officer who... Uh, you know, we filmed for the police shooting film, really liked the film, which I didn't expect because it was it was critical of his past. You know, we filmed, like, his ex-boss, his ex-wife. You know, we kind of went quite deep on him and and the previous shooting and all of that. But um, I think she felt that we treated them fairly. Um, and I spoke, you know, and we became quite close with her actually you know her husband's in prison and you know we had a good relationship with her and I talked her through all the negative elements that were going to be in the film so there were no surprises for her 
And I think she was kind of pleasant. She, she thought we'd been fair, basically. So I think you can make a film that is powerful and people can draw their own conclusions, but you can do it in such a way that feels like you're not stitching people up, mm. you know. Would that be how you describe one of the president's orders? Yeah, I mean, probably in that instance, it probably is a bit... It's not stitching them up, but it's um, probably their perception of what is okay is so far from ours that probably we knew how badly they would come across pretty quickly in a way that they probably didn't realise. You know, America's not quite that that level. Because <laughs> some of the placards that were up last night were pretty hard-hitting and, and, you know, pretty... Um, yeah, they, they weren't holding back on what they thought of you as well. There, there was a literal placard with your name on it oh, last yeah, night. Yeah. Badge of honour. Yeah, I, I'll send you the before. picture in a minute. Oh, I, you got I, one? I think I did, yeah, because oh, cool. I managed to get a bit of a panoramic. Oh, great. Yeah. Love to see um, so to, to kind of wrap up a little bit, what is the the future with On the President's Orders? Where, where else is it being screened? So it will... We're playing... What date will this go out, do you reckon? Uh, I'm going I'm to want to get it out quite soon. Okay, cool. Yeah. So it's playing in the middle of September. It's playing at Amnesty International in London. Then it's going to be released at the Dock House Cinema in, in London nice. for like a week. Um, and it's playing a festival in London called Rain Dance. Oh, cool. Yes. Uh, so in like Piccadilly Circus. Yeah, I think. I've, I've got experience with Rain Dance. Oh, I cool. premiered The Culture High there, which is one of my films. Oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah. Oh, nice. That was in, I think, 2012, I think. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. I'll be there for that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that'd be yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm sure the protesters will be too. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, it'd be interesting. And Hopefully then, with their sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. With their cucumber sandwiches. Uh, and then it's going to play in America like at some cinemas in New York and LA and, a few, and then a few more festivals and whatever. And then it'll be on BBC in October or November. Um, so on Storyville. One, and just to quickly um, bring up this point as well, is that one of the questions last night, which I thought was quite interesting, is that they picked up on the style of how it was filmed because it is yeah. very cinematic, but not deliberately, isn't it? You said that you know, there was no artificial lighting apart from one shot, which which your friend Ed actually spotted straight away <laughs> when we were speaking about it afterwards. He said, oh, that, that's the one that's got lighting on it uh, because it cast a really right. nice shadow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that was, like, quite deliberate, yeah. So Olivier Sarbil, my co-director, is the cinematographer and he's... A genius. It um, looks so good. I know yeah. it sounds such a weird thing to say given yeah. the topic, but it does look good, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. And, and it's, a, it's a difficult balance to strike because obviously the content is the most important thing. But I kind of think that just because a subject is grim and gritty doesn't mean that the camera work has to be grim and gritty and ugly. So, you know, we wanted it to have like a visual style and to feel you know, atmospheric and filmic and cinematic. Um, and, you know, hopefully that, like, heightens the intensity of the film rather than distracting. But some people, won't, you know, some people, it won't be their taste. Some people prefer documentaries that are a bit more kind of rough and ready because it makes you think it's more authentic. But, you know, it's the same as people who film in war zones and it's all kind of shaky, wobbly camera and breathless. Like, it can be a bit of a gimmick like a bit of a trick to Almost make Blair Witchy. yeah it makes people think it's more dangerous like we never really wanted to make you know people think we're in danger like it, it's not a it's not a very personal film in a way like I know we interview them a bit and there is a bit of interaction but it's not um we didn't want to make it about us it was like just trying to capture this kind of 
you know, extraordinary phenomenon. And if if the place feels like kind of like a dystopia and a bit like nightmarish, then like that is trying to capture what it feels like, you know. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for joining me because like, you must have been so busy over the last few days with what's <laughs> going on with this film. Yeah. Uh, and I do really congratulate you on, on what you've done because for so many reasons, it looks great. It's certainly a hard-hitting film. that I th- And also, I think that every level can engage in this because uh, one of the things that can happen with these subjects is it can be pitched over people's heads because it's just too far in advance for their understanding. But I think you managed to get um, quite... Um, someone that's involved in this subject like me also someone that's got no whereabouts on this subject whatsoever i think they can have a position in this film as well so i think you managed to cover a lot of bases that's great Uh, so thank you so much for joining me no thank you it's been great talking about it thank you so much james for giving us that conversation and yeah there's still a lot going on in the philippines isn't there as i said make sure you do check out all the screenings that are going on with this film and while we're on some thank yous, make sure you join me in thanking the producers of this show, because it's not all about me. This is Nikki, Tristan and John. They do so much for this. And also John Harris at the Distraction Piece of Network for all you do. He is an absolute star, trust me. Thank you to Scribius Pit for hosting this on your network. Make sure you listen to all of the Distraction Pieces of Network, because they're fantastic. And also, my name is Ad. Thank you so much for all the artwork. And also, thank you to Release for hosting this at your offices again. Right. I think that's it. And if you want to follow us on social media, our Instagram and Twitter are both at UKLeap and our website and Facebook at UKLeap.org. I think that is now it. I'm off to upload the next episode. Make sure you download, subscribe, like, all those sort of things. It all helps. Thank you so much. Bye. Behind your barricade. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.